Chapter 2 of The Duck-Footed Hound by Jim Geljard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Harky. At twenty minutes past five, just four hours before old Joe startled the owl that watched him come out of his den, Harky Mundy peered furtively round the rear of the cow he was milking to see if his father was watching. He was. Harky sighed and went back to work. Mun Mundy had firm opinions concerning the proper way to milk a cow or do anything else, and when other arguments failed, he enforced his ideas with the flat of his hand. Harky sighed again. Old Brindle, far and away the orneriest of Mun's five cows, and probably anyone else's, had teeth remarkably like the fingers of a buckskin glove that has been left out in the rain and then dried in the sun. Coaxing the last squirts of milk from her probably was not so hard as squeezing apple juice from a rock, but it certainly ran a close second. Since there was no alternative, Harky beguiled the anything but fleeting moments with the comforting reflection that winter, after all, was one of his favorite seasons. It could not compare with autumn, when corn rustled crisply in the shuck and dogs sniffed about for scents of the coons that always raided shucked corn. Nor did it equal early spring, when trout streams were ice-free and the earth still too wet for plowing. But it was far ahead of late spring and summer, with their endless farm tasks, each of which was worse than the other. Only by exercising the greatest craft and diligence and manfully preparing himself for the chastisement he was sure to get when he finally came home could a man sneak away for a bit of fishing or swimming. Harky bent his head toward old Brindle's flank, but his thoughts whisked him out of the stable into the hills. Shotgun in hand, he'd spent a fair portion of yesterday tracking a bobcat on the snow. It was a proved fact that a man on foot cannot catch up with a bobcat that is also on foot. But it was not to be denied that all bobcats have a touch of moon madness. They knew when they were being tracked, but they also knew when the tracker ceased following, and that kindled a fire in their heads. As long as they were tracked, they were comfortable in the knowledge that they had only to keep running. When the tracker stopped, it threw the bobcat's whole plan out of gear. They imagined all sorts of ambushes and cunning traps, and finally, they worked themselves into such a frenzy that they just had to come back along their own tracks and find out what was happening. It followed that the hunter had nothing to do except rile the bobcat into a lather and then sit down and wait. Harky had waited, but he must have done something wrong, or perhaps the bobcat he followed had not been sufficiently moonstruck. Though it had come back, it had not been so anxious to find Harky that it forgot everything else. Harky had glimpsed it across the gully, two hundred yards away and hopelessly beyond shotgun range. If only he had a rifle. He hadn't any, and the last time he'd sneak Munns out, his father had caught him coming back with it. The hiding that followed, Munn used a hickory gad instead of the flat of his hand, was something a man wouldn't forget if he lived to be older than the rocks on Dewberry Knob. Harky lost himself in a beautiful dream. Walking along Willow Brook, he accidentally kicked an overturned rock. Beneath it, shiny bright as they had been the day the forgotten bandit buried them, was a whole sack full of gold pieces. At once, Harky hurried into town and bought a rifle. Not an old thirty-eight fifty-five like his father's, but a sleek, new bolt action with fancy carving on breech and forearm. When he brought it home, Munn asked rather timidly if he might use it. No, Pa, Harky heard himself saying. It's not that I care to slight you, but this rifle is for a hunter like me. The shining dream was shattered by Munns. You done, Harky? Harky looked hastily up to see his father beside him. Yes, Pa, he said. 
Let me see. Mun sat down beside old Brindle, and Harky sighed with relief. When Mun Mundy could not get the last squirt from a cow, it fell that the cow was indeed stripped. But Mun, conditioned by experience, never completely approved of anything Harky did. We'll close up for the night, he said. Harky scooted out of the barn, ahead of his father, and gulped lungfuls of the softening wind. It seemed that a man could never get enough of that kind of air. Mun closed and latched the barn door, and Harky turned to him. It's a thaw wind, he said rapturously. Yep. Not the big thaw, though. Nope. Do you reckon, Harky asked, it'll fetch the coons out? Mun deliberated. A subject as serious as coons called for deliberation. I don't rightly know, he said finally. I figure some will go on the prowl and some won't. It was, Harky decided, a not unreasonable answer, even though it lacked the elements of true drama. Harky gulped another lungful of air and almost, but not quite, loosed the reins of his own imagination. Even seasoned hunters did not argue coon lore with Mun Mundy, but on an evening such as this it was impossible to think in prosaic terms. They lingered near the barn and faced into the wind. Presently, Harky stood there in body only. His spirit took him to heaven. Heaven, as translated at that moment, was the summit of a mountain ten times as high as Dewberry Knob. From his lofty eminence, Harky looked at a great forest that stretched as far as his eyes could see. Each tree was hollow, and each hollow contained a coon. As though every coon had received the same signal at the same time, all came out. There were more coons than a man could hunt if he hunted every night for the next thousand years. At exactly the right moment, this entrancing scene became perfection. Deep in the great forest, Precious Sue lifted her voice to announce that she had to coon up. Harky made his way among the great trees toward the sound. He found Precious Sue doing her best to climb a sycamore so massive that ten men, holding each other's hands, could not come even close to encircling the trunk. When Harky shined his light into the tree, he saw not just a coon, but the king of coons. Sitting on a branch, staring down with eyes big as locomotives' headlights, was old Joe himself. The fancy faded, but Harky was left with no sense of frustration because fact replaced it. Somewhere out in the creeping hills, the aura that surrounded him considerably enhanced by the fact that no human being knew exactly where, old Joe really was sleeping the winter away. Suppose that he really came prowling tonight. Suppose Precious Sue really did run him up that big sycamore in the woodlot. Suppose Harky really... Harky could no longer be silent. Pa? he asked. How long has old Joe been prowling these hills? A man who would speak of coons must think before he spoke. For a full ninety seconds, Mun did not answer. Then he said seriously, A right smart time, Harky. There's them will tell you that even if a coon don't get trapped or shot or a dog killed, or die no death for his time, he'll live only about ten years anyhow. I reckon that may be so if you mean just ordinary coons. Old Joe ain't no ordinary coon. My grandpa hunted him, and my pa, and me, and you've hunted him. Old Joe, he's just about as much of a fixture in these hills as us Mundies. Harky pondered this information. When he went to school down at the crossroads, which he did whenever he couldn't get out of it, he had acquired some education, but he had also acquired some disturbing information. Miss Cathby, who taught all eight grades, was a very earnest soul, dedicated to the proposition that the children in her care 
must not grow up to wallow in the same morass of mingled ignorance and superstition that surrounded their fathers and mothers. Miss Cathby had pointed out, and produced scientific statistics to prove, that the moon was nothing more than a satellite of the earth. As such, its influence over earth dwellers was strictly limited. The moon was responsible for tides and other things about which Miss Cathby had been very vague because she didn't know. But she did know that the moon could not affect birth, death, or destiny. Old Joe had been the subject of another of Miss Cathby's lectures. He was just a big coon, she said, though she mispronounced it raccoon. It was absurd even to think that he had been living in the creeping hills forever. Since old Joe was mortal, and like all mortals must eventually pass to his everlasting reward, his successor would be in all probability the next biggest raccoon. Harky conceded that she had something to offer, but it also seemed that Munn had much on his side, and on the whole, Munn's conception of the real and earnest life was far more interesting than Miss Cathby's. She got her information from books that were all right, but sort of small. Munn took his lore from the limitless woods. How long have us Mondays been here? Harky asked. My grandpa, your great-grandpa, settled this very farm fifty-one years past come April 19, Munn said proudly. Where did he come from? He never did say, Munn admitted. Didn't nobody ask? Twas thought best not to ask, Munn said. Blast it, Harky, what's chewing on you? Ain't it enough to know where your grandpa come from? Why, why yes. Confused for the moment, Harky went back to the fundamentals. His great-grandfather had settled the Mundy farm 51 years ago. He was 13. 13 from 51 left 38 years that the Mundys had lived on the farm before Harky was even born. Confusion gave way to mingled awe and pride. Old Joe was not the only tradition in the Creeping Hills. The Mundys were fully as famous and had as much right to call themselves old-timers. For that matter, so did Precious Sue, the last of a line of hounds brought to the Creeping Hills by Mun's grandfather. Her breed was doomed unless Mun found a suitable mate for her, but better to let the breed die than to offer Precious Sue an unworthy mate. Mun said, Reckon we best get in. Yes, Pa. Side by side, they started down the soggy path toward the house. Precious Sue left her bed on the porch and came to meet them. She was medium-sized, and her dark undercoat was dappled with bluish spots or ticks. Shredded ears bore mute testimony to her many battles with coons. Though she ate prodigious meals, every slated rib showed. Her paunch was lean, and knobby hip bones thrust over her back. Outwardly, Precious Sue resembled nothing so much as an emaciated alligator. For all the coon hunters of the Creeping Hills cared, she could have been an alligator, as long as she continued to perform with such consummate artistry on a coon's track. Though a casual observer might have deduced that Precious Sue had trouble just holding herself up, she had once disappeared for forty-eight hours. Mun finally found her under the same tree and holding the same coon that she must have run up two hours after starting. She was one of the very few hounds that had ever forced Old Joe to seek refuge in his magic sycamore, and no hound could do more. Unfortunately, she lived under a curse. The only pup of what should have been an abundant litter, a bad enough thing if considered by itself, Precious Sue had been born on a wild night at the wrong time of the moon. Therefore, she had a streak of wildness that must assert itself whenever the moon was dark. If she were run at such times, she must surely meet disaster. But as Precious Sue met and fell in beside them, 
Harky thought only of his dream. Do you think old Joel prowl tonight? He asked his father. What are you driving at, Harky? I was thinking old Joel might prowl and come here, and Sue will run him up that sycamore on the woodlot and... Harky, Mun thundered. Heed what you say. Huh? Harky asked bewilderedly. Mun shook his puzzled head. I can't figure you, Harky. I can't figure it all. This is the dark of the moon. I forgot, Harky said humbly. I reckon you ain't always at fault for what runs on in that head of yours. Hadn't you ought to tie her up? Harky questioned. Sue can't bide ties, and no coon will come here tonight, Mun said decisively. Least of all, old Joe. But if he does, Harky began. Harky, Mun thundered. He won't. Yes, Pa. Long after he was supposedly in bed, Harky stood before his open window, listening to the song of the south wind. Sometimes he couldn't even figure himself. There had been last fall, when they jumped the big buck out of Garson's slashing. Mun and Melly Garson had taken its trail. But Harky had a feeling about that buck. He'd felt that it would head for the rhododendron thicket on Hoot Owl Ridge, and that in getting there, it would pass Split Rock. Harky went to sit on Split Rock. Not twenty minutes later, the buck passed beside him. It was an easy shot. Old Joe would not come tonight because Munn said he wouldn't. But Harky was unable to rid himself of a feeling that he would, and he was uneasy when he finally went to bed. He slept soundly, but Harky had never been able to figure his sleep either. Often he awakened with the feeling that something was due to happen, and it always did. When the wild geese flew north or south, or a thunderstorm was due to break, Harky knew before he heard anything. This night, he sat up in bed with the feeling that he would hear something very soon. He heard it. A muffled squawk of a hen. On a backwoods farm at night, a squawking hen means just one thing. Harky jumped out of bed and padded to the door of his father's bedroom. Pa! What do you want? I heard a hen squawk. Be right with you. Harky was dressed and ready, with a shotgun in his hands, when Mun came into the kitchen. Mun lighted a lantern, took his own shotgun from its rack, and led the way to the chicken house. He knelt beside the little door by which the chickens left and entered, and his muffled word rippled the air. Look. Harky looked. Seeming to begin and end at the little door, the biggest coon tracks in the world were plain in the soft snow. Ten thousand butterflies churned in his stomach. It was almost as though the whole thing were his fault. He said, Old Joe. Mun glanced queerly at his son, but he made no reply as he held his lantern so it lighted the tracks. Harky trotted behind his father and noted with miserable eyes where Sue's tracks joined Old Joe's. They came to the flood surging over Willow Brook, and just at the edge, a whole section of ice had already caved in. Both sets of tracks ended there. End of chapter 2